Welcome to Anti-Aging Unraveled with Dr. Lori Gerber. The body is one of the most complicated systems in the universe. Dr. Gerber and her guests explore integrative medicine and cosmetic dermatology, combining traditional medicine, alternative health practices, new innovations, and technology, which work together to help you look and feel natural and age gracefully. Now, here is your host, Dr. Lori Gerber. Good afternoon, everybody. It's Dr. Lori Gerber bringing you another episode of Anti-Aging Unraveled. And I just got done a run, so I'm going to try to give you as much energy as possible. Um, And it will be super relevant to my run as to why I did my run today. You know, we're going to talk about hormone imbalance. And when I look at hormones, what what you're going to understand is that I don't look at them like your normal physician does. I'm looking at different reference ranges. I'm looking at, are you on the high end of a reference range, the low end of a range? And really, those hormones are not isolated. All those things in your body do not work independently of one another. And that is the key to really what I do. Um, There is, you know, in functional medicine and integrative medicine, there is this inherent um, belief and, and understanding that everything is connected. And what that means is that one thing does not work isolated from another. So when your insulin stops working really well, and that is the actual hormone that regulates your sugar, we know that it's more you're more prone to diabetes, that you're more prone to putting down fat in the organ or belly area. And this happens primarily later in life, right? So it's not just a genetic predisposition to have insulin doesn't work. Um, it's related to what else is going on in your body. Um, is there a genetic predisposition to the other things going on in your body that actually will affect your insulin? Um, And also, is it related to lifestyle? Um, And being able to modify that can have a lot to do with, are you going to be able to lose weight? And are we going to be able to make this insulin, which really drives metabolism, sugar regulation, fat production, are we going to be able to regulate this in a way that um, makes it easier for you to lose weight? So I'm going to bring this back to 10 hormones that can affect insulin. And hopefully, I'm going to actually give you some information that's usable um, so that you can really take this and, you know, whether it's look at your own labs, whether it's come to me and say, you know what, can we interpret these or maybe get a new set of labs or maybe just give you recommendations as to what to do for your hormone um, optimization or even just supplements because there are basic things that we can do, which is why I did my run this morning and did my all of my supplements and I'm drinking my beautiful collagen and gut healthy tea. Um, so when I talk about these kind of things, you're going to realize that there's more to your lab work than just normal reference ranges and that things work together. So let's talk about diabetes for a minute. So 60 to 70 million people are affected by insulin resistance in the United States. So, you know, that statistic, about 40% of those are 50 years old or older. Um, and, those people are what we would say are at high risk for insulin resistance and it can affect anyone at any age but you know we are and we are seeing a majority of people getting it younger in life especially kids so this actually leads to what we call a metabolic syndrome which is where things i always call it the trickle down effect right you have cholesterol issues you have diabetes issues you have um, thyroid issues and these things can actually obviously all work together and about 90 to 95% of these cases, guys, can be prevented um, or controlled, right? Is it diet? Is it maintaining your other hormones? Is it discussing things that maybe we can do genetically speaking to prevent this from happening initially before we even get there? So, you know, 
there's two types of diabetes. The majority of the problem in our country is type two or what we call later onset diabetes. And like I said, that is happening in kids more commonly than not. We're seeing a fatty liver disease, which is really from not knowing where to put your sugar, your extra sugars, because your insulin can't use it. So in, in your stores of glycogen are all full. And when that happens, we have to put it around our organs and belly fat or, or liver fat is one of them. So really, we're going to talk about insulin resistance. There's obviously another type of insulin issue where it's more what we call a type 1 diabetes. And that is when there's not enough insulin. The pancreas cannot produce enough insulin. And you know that can happen genetically speaking. There are mutations that can create this as well. And um, over time, when you are a di type 2 diabetic, when your insulin is resistant, at some point your pancreas can't keep up and stops making enough insulin. And that's when you become an insulin-dependent diabetic. So you know, we're going to talk about the hormone connection and what happens when insulin is resistant. So you get belly fat, right? You have other unbalanced hormones, which we kind of alluded to, but thyroid being one of them. Um, you Other things that can cause insulin resistance as we're talking about this is when those hormones aren't balanced. So progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, thyroid, even unnecessary replacement of thyroid hormone can actually cause some insulin resistance. There are prescription drugs that can do it. Um, obviously, we know about lack of physical activity, sitting around, chronic stress, um, unfortunately, can cause insulin resistance. Sleep issues um, with cortisol and dysregulation of cortisol, which is our you know get up and go stress hormone, but that regulates our insulin. And um, not enough protein again can lead to insulin resistance. And last but not least, which is kind of the the, in my brain, the beyond end all is the overconsumption of sugar, carbohydrates, and alcohol. So when we talk about, and we've done a whole bunch of talking about what to eat and how many carbohydrates to eat and all that kind of thing, um, you know, we know this push, you know, in the early probably 50s and 60s to sugary cereals, um, an American, what I would call grain-based diet, and sodas, prepared meals, they're not good for um, diabetes, and they've actually increased um, the diabetes cases exponentially. So, you know, that is the first thing you can change. And, you know, if you're, if you're eating appropriately and your other hormones are not driving you towards this insulin resistance, really, that should self-correct you. If you're picking foods that are less than 5 to 10 grams of what we would call carbohydrate or sugar load per serving, you're really not putting an extra strain on your insulin and you should be able to keep your pancreas um, to be able to keep up with that production. So let's talk about, you know, what does this have to do with the other hormones? And what hormones are related. And I think a lot of us don't realize that there's, you know, chemical signaling that happens in our body. So, you know, your kidneys, your ovaries, your heart, your, and all these things talk to each other. So we have reproductive hormones that talk to digestive hormones that talk to our brain and mood and metabolism. And that's really the key to a well-balanced body, right? We have to work from all facets. And the first um, hormone I want to talk about, and I'm going to do a whole talk on thyroid, guys, and that's my first hormone, but we're going to talk a little bit about thyroid hormone. And when I talk about thyroid hormone, we're not just talking about TSH, which is a thyroid-stimulating hormone. And that hormone, unfortunately, really isn't a true thyroid hormone, right? That doesn't get made in the thyroid. That's a stimulating hormone, which means it gets made somewhere else, and it tells the thyroid to make more. And when you have low thyroid hormone, even if it's on the low end of a normal reference range, 
remember we're all we all have this bell-shaped curve that we look at each other and when we look at something you know you're on the high end you're in the middle you're on the low and who knows where you sat when your metabolism was quote unquote normal or when you were losing weight or when you were younger because you didn't have an issue so generally we didn't check so the thyroid hormone is responsible for basically metabolism and when you don't have enough, it actually decreases your insulin sensitivity, which creates insulin resistance. And, you know, we know that those with hypothyroidism have issues primarily with weight and gaining weight. And, you know, in general, it's a catch-22. You either gain weight and then you're getting insulin resistant and then type 2 diabetes and gaining more weight, or did the insulin resistance cause the hypothyroidism and vice versa. So it's like this circle. It's very difficult to break. And, you know, there are ways to treat thyroid without putting you on thyroid medication. Um, if you listen in, um, I believe it's next week, we're going to talk about thyroid dysregulation and, and the history of the thyroid um, treatment protocols and how that's changed over the years. I'm a big proponent of low-dose iodine um, to try to get the thyroid to start producing a little more efficiently. And there's a lot of data, and it's old data that has been used for decades to support that that does help the thyroid. Um, there's also other things that help the thyroid. Methylated B12, because we need it to make more thyroid hormone. Adequate vitamin D levels. Um, I like 5,000 IUs of vitamin D3. Um, with A and K2, which help absorption, help thyroid regulation. So those are just some simple things that we can do to get our thyroid working more efficiently. And obviously, we use some thyroid hormone as well. And in the United States, it's typically um, Synthroid. Synthroid is an inactive form of thyroid hormone. And, you know, I'm more prone to use what I would call a T3, T4 combination, which is an armor thyroid um, combination or nature thyroid, which um, is temporarily not being produced. But those are T3 and T4, which basically means they're made from pig-based um, T3 and T4, which is active and inactive thyroid hormone. So it's desiccated um, thyroid, essentially, which means it's it's de dehydrated or desiccated. And to me, that does a really nice job of raising your levels. Um, the next thing we're going to talk about is glucagon. Sorry, guys. And glucagon is the opposite of insulin. It's what we want to, essentially, we want to deplete our stores of sugar. And glu glucagon actually releases sugar into the bloodstream. It's what takes it out of storage mode. All right. So it's this hormone that says, okay, you don't have enough sugar right now because you're not eating it, which is probably a good thing. So we need to release sugar into the bloodstream. And Glucagon is released by the alpha cells of the pancreas, and it's released in between meals or when we're sleeping, right? So, or when we're exercising heavy and we need more um, sugars. It delivers it to the liver for utilization. So that's what really regulates blood sugar levels. So when we get this um, fatty liver, it's for lack of adequate storage of this fat or the sugar because it stores it as fat. So glucagon is, is used for energy. We don't necessarily want to be um, producing a lot of glucagon because we don't want to be, we actually, I lied to you, we want to be producing glucagon because we want to be tapping into your fat stores, especially initially when we're trying to lose weight. The only way we can do that is to deplete our sugar first. All right, so our body will preferentially go to sugar first and release that sugar. Then we can tap into our fat stores. So 
if we are using too much glucagon and we keep using this, using this, using this to release additional sugar, the insulin gets on overload, okay? So the more sugar stores we have, the more our insulin has to work to convert that sugar and put it into the cells. So we don't want large stores of sugar, okay? That is not something that we want our body to have, which is where these kind of sugar detoxes and fasting come from because we want to try to deplete this excess so that we start tapping into what we would say, or I like to call a fat adapted mode, or using your own body fat to produce its own sugar and then use that for energy. So, you know, can we necessarily fix glucagon? Not easily, but we can deplete our stores of sugar so that our glucagon, our glucagon release is lowered, okay? So again, that goes back to that low carbohydrate diet and low sugar diet, and maybe even doing a week to two weeks of a sugar detox to actually deplete those glucose um, stores. Okay, so that's thyroid and glucagon. Let's talk about something that's probably a little bit more um, unheard of. There's three related hormones, and it's GLP-1, GIP, and amylin. And these three hormones are kind of the the signaling hormones to produce insulin. They say, all right, amylin sees the sugar and it basically is secreted with insulin and, and from the pancreas and says, all right, here's all the sugar we got to take care of. And GLP-1 and GIP are produced in the small intestine and they actually work to control the glucagon and sugar spikes. So these three hormones in conjunction control the ups and downs of your sugar regulation. And they, they have a very, very strong correlation with how you react to um, sugars and whether or not you're going to become insulin resistant. Again, can we directly, yes, there's some, there's some medications that can directly um, deal with these from a diabetes perspective, but the easiest way to get this regulation is to really limit your blood sugars um, or the intake of sugar. So your blood sugar spikes are very minimal. We don't want these highs and lows of blood sugar. Even people that are very thin, that we are call what we call hypoglycemic, don't do well with these high spikes in sugars. And what that means is that they're going to spike and trough and they're going to get these lows. And that's not good either because your insulin is being poured out and it has to work really hard and then it sucks the sugars back in. And that's really not what we want. We want a nice, steady blood sugar, which if you've heard any of my previous podcasts um, and shows can really come from a fat adapted diet. So that's one of those things that if, if you can change one thing or take one thing out of this conversation, it's that sugar is not your friend. Um, and that actually will go for fruits as well. You know, make sure we keep on the track of low glycemic. So we're really looking at berries, right? Blackberries, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries. Um, this time of year, we all indulge in melons and, and pineapple. And while they taste really good and we think they're good for you, they're very, very high in sugar, so you should have them in moderation. Okay, so we've talked about kind of sugar regulation specifically. Now let's talk about what we would call like adrenaline or um, epinephrine. And that's kind of the get up and go. It's the I'm going to run away from a bear, kind of like cortisol regulation, which we're going to talk about next. And these two hormones, um, they basically say, all right, I'm making you anxious, right? I'm going to give you some energy and I'm going to give you the energy by increasing sugar metabolism so you can use it. And it tells the liver and kidneys to produce more sugar in response to um, 
the insulin response. So it's basically this, I'm going to give you enough energy to run away from a bear right now. And the only way I can do that is to increase your sugar metabolism. Okay. So it's going to actually rev everything up. If that is continually revved, your insulin is being on overdrive for long periods of time, right? So it gets tired, it gets worn out, and it can't do the job on, on a you know a very, very consistent basis, which is why at some point it's become going to become resistant and not work as well. That goes hand in hand with cortisol. And cortisol is probably one of the hardest things in my industry to treat because in the United States specifically, we're a very type A population. We are going, going, going. Maybe COVID has helped or hurt that somewhat for some people. But, you know, we release this stress hormone when we become anxious and we release it first thing in the morning so that we can get up and we have the energy, again, that blood sugar regulation to be able to go do what we want to do. Um, it encourages the liver to produce more glucose and release more glucose. So, and the insulin has to work on that glucose. So again, that epinephrine, cortisol, high anxiety, high stress, little sleep, all create insulin resistance over time. Okay. And whether your cortisols are high or low, I get this question a lot. Um, you can have insulin resistance. Okay. Because it's a, it's a continuum. Cortisol being high for long periods of time is basically like giving you steroid all the time and it will make you um, gain weight. But so can cortisols being too low because they, if they're low, generally speaking, they were high for a long period of time before they bottomed out. So this can make you gain weight as well. And cortisol regulation, the one proven thing to help cortisol is meditation. Five to 10 minutes a day of meditation is phenomenal. And we have some adaptogens and adrenal glandulars um, to be able to help that as well. And, you know, I do sell one of those in my Dr. Lori line, and I do love it because it is a glandular extract. And it gives you back a little bit of a more natural cortisol level, so it stops your body from these fluctuations. Um, it does not want you to, we don't want you to have these ups and downs. We want to have a nice peak in the morning and just a slow decline as the day goes on, okay? And then obviously overnight, we're going to produce a nice normal sugar level to keep you going throughout the night. And then again, that should spike in the morning and come down as the day goes on. Another reason it's not really good to eat late at night, because you're going to spike some of these levels and spike your insulin responses. Okay. Um, so the next one we're going to talk about is leptin. And Leptin is um, one of the most important hormones, I think, that's been overlooked for a long time, um, but it's produced by fat cells. Leptin is the hormone that tells you that you're full. And I don't know about you guys, but in the United States, I feel like our leptin levels have been pushed to the limit because our portion sizes are so large, right? So we don't tell our bodies that it's enough. And we're, we're not really shutting that off. So we eat our whole plate, right? We eat until everything is gone. You know, even back in the day, it was, you know, you have to, you can't leave the table till your plate is empty. And really, you should eat to satiety, right? It's the brain signal that tells your body that you're full. And if leptin isn't working appropriately, you're going to eat more than you should. And that's a problem, right? Because again, it stimulates more insulin and it stimulates more sugar um, to, be, to be in the body. And then you, over time, obesity and insulin resistance. So leptin resistance and insulin resistance go hand in hand. And I think it's a hormone that probably should be checked when we talk about things that maybe we're not doing 
um, as primary care physicians because insulin and leptin can give you a really good sign of someone whose insulin is not being um, is, is starting to become resistant. And maybe you're not diabetic yet, but you're coming into these trends of what your body is working harder than it has to. That's a really big deal. Um, in medicine, I feel like we tend to treat after the fact, right? We don't treat proactively. And that's an issue. So, you know, if we check these leptin levels, we check cortisol morning levels, I don't need, you know, an, a whole trend. If we check the um, thyroid, the TSH, the T3, the T4, the antibodies, these things will give us a better clue of how this is all working. Instead of just waiting until your glucoses and sugars go up on your blood panel and your you know, primary says, hey guys, it's just your genetic you know, predisposition to diabetes. We're going to have to put you on something. And while I love metformin for how it works on insulin levels and sensitivity, if we don't have to be on a drug, I find it to be much more beneficial than having to be on one if we can find things early. And I do find people are pretty responsive to telling you or you telling them rather that, you know, here's what's going on. If you keep going down this slippery slope, this is what's going to happen. And especially with um, COVID, I think it's maybe pulled some wool off of the eyes of some people where they've really taken a, a, um, a proactive approach to their wellness and healthcare. So another hormone, let's switch gears a little bit to sex hormones. And growth hormone is something we talk about, I guess, timidly. And Again, I don't know how much you want to do with growth hormone. I do some with growth hormone, and I do feel like there's some really good places for peptides and things that stimulate growth hormone. But growth hormone is what we call kind of the anti-aging hormone. It leans you out. It makes you if it, it makes you feel better. It helps you with weight loss. Um, it's the kind of anti-aging hormone, and it's produced during the pituitary, and it actually increases during growth spurts and naturally declines over the course of your of your lifetime. And it goes down based on lifestyle and genetics, I would say. You know, healthy lifestyle and, and exercising and eating well can and can actually improve growth hormones. But I do find that most people in their 40s and early 50s, their growth hormone has declined pretty significantly. And cortisol and sleep and all these things can help growth hormone. But low or actually either way, low or high levels of growth hormone can cause insulin resistance. I think we find it more in low um, growth hormone just in general in the population. And this is interesting, right? So we know that people that go on HGH or growth hormone, these things, they they do. They lean out. They lose body fat. Um, there is It is very controversial, but you know, there is a place for stimulating growth hormone um, in our in my field. And there's certain peptides um, that will help to stimulate growth hormone. And, you know, they're really interesting. We'll do a whole talk on peptides um, very shortly because they're a they're becoming very popular in the industry. And I think that there's something to be said for addressing um, growth hormone, which really we haven't been able to do adequately before. Because what happens when you make things grow? And I think what we have to think about is how do we stop things from growing that we don't want to grow? Because that's what growth hormone is going to do. It's going to create this like metabolic process that's very sped up. And what we worry about in the medical community is types of cancer is growing. So, you know, this is something where I feel like, you know, there's this um, seesaw of whether or not we can, how long can we treat it or, or how do we treat this? But sleep, sugar regulation, 
maybe some yoga, all of these things, workouts, exercising, anything that will increase testosterone will also necessarily increase growth hormone. So let's talk a little bit about the estrogen progesterone seesaw. And I think there's some misconception and maybe even some confusion in the information that's out there on estrogen and progesterone and insulin resistance. So, you know, I think if you think about this logically, we know that when a female go or a male for that matter, and we'll talk about testosterone, but when they go through andropause or menopause, their hormones start to decline. We see weight gain. We see belly fat. We see energy levels declining. Um, and we see metabolic syndrome, We see, which is basically insulin resistance, cholesterol getting higher, and thyroid becoming um, low. And there is a real link here between the sex hormones and how well the insulin is working. And in females, I think we, you know, in my part of the industry, we talk about progesterone being an insulin sensitizer. So when we lose progesterone, which when we go through menopause, testosterone is kind of one of the first things that goes down early on, probably post-pregnancy, 30s. Then progesterone drops. Most women's sim symptoms of hormone imbalance are from low progesterone not or high estrogen, not necessarily low estrogen until later in menopause. So as that progesterone declines, this is almost always when I see somebody, they can't sleep. They can't stay asleep, fall asleep. They're anxious they, or they have new anxiety that's worsening. They're depressed. They have mood swings. Um, and they're gaining weight. They're gaining this belly fat and they're, they're getting squishy and they can't figure out why. And their periods are probably still regular. Maybe they're shortening a little bit or lightening. But progesterone is responsible for thickening the wall of the uterus and kind of holding the lining in, right? So it's, it's really the pregnancy hormone. And when that drops in it, during your period and or when you're going through menopause or per, what we call perimenopause, your insulin starts to actually become desensitized. And that happens obviously um, pretty early in life for a lot of people. So in your 40s, maybe even your you know late 30s. And this is something, again, if we check insulin levels on someone that might be slightly overweight, that's going through perimenopause or having these period changes or even mood swings or sleep issues, we might find insulin resistance earlier. And that's something that I think is really important. Not even necessarily having to treat the progesterone, which we can do with a supplement like pregnenolone to help stimulate some progesterone production. We can give you a bioidentical progesterone to help kind of raise up those progesterone levels slightly, help with mood and help with insulin. And we don't have any estrogen risk. We're not talking about cancer risk. We're actually, the, it's, it's the anti-cancer. It's the blocking of the proliferation of, that estrogen creates, okay? So bioidentical progesterone is very safe. Um, it, will, it will actually help with insulin resistance, help with mood, help with sleep, get you through some of these perimenopause symptoms, and maybe presents, prevent some of this weight gain that's going to perpetuate this insulin resistance becoming diabetes. So we know that that's a problem. Okay, so now let's talk about estrogen falling. Estrogen is that female hormone, right? It's secreted in the ovaries. And, excuse me, <coughs> sorry about that, guys. Its main purpose is to regulate the reproductive system. So estrogen is responsible for insulin activity. It will literally drive your insulin resistance. 
So as you age, estrogen's high, progesterone's low. Okay, I'm squishy mushy. I have this belly fat. Now my insulin's not working. And now I have all this estrogen that all it wants to do is create more insulin activity. So it actually will overdrive your insulin. So this high estrogen, low progesterone thing creates this belly fat issue. And, you know, we hear it all the time, this midsection weight gain. And, you know, there is some discussion that it's low estrogen that causes insulin resistance. And I think if you really look at this critically and look at the continuum of how these hormones go, I think it's more the progesterone drop, this estrogen being high, and then over time that insulin will, or that estrogen will drop. The question is, is as that estrogen drops, will that insulin rebound? And I think what it will really depend on is how much weight gain was there and how, because the fat will actually perpetuate this problem, right? So we don't want to gain too much weight during perimenopause, especially if your insulin is getting resistant when you're in menopause or perimenopause. The last hormone to address and I think this is a pretty important one that goes undiscussed is testosterone. And I think testosterone, again, gets a little bit of a bad rap when it comes to insulin resistance and sugars. Um, if you have high testosterone and your PCOS, which is women with, with high testosterone, we like to blame these high levels of testosterone for insulin resistance and body fat and belly fat. Whereas in reality, um, it's, it's most likely their estrogen dominance. And when they gain the weight, again, it's like that self-perpetuating problem where the insulin continues to become more and more resistant. So what do we see more in men is as testosterone decreases, which is responsible for sex drive and, and orgasm and, and uh, metabolism and being able to put on muscle mass, specifically, when you can't put on muscle mass because you don't have enough testosterone. And the same goes with females. And you can't get that increased metabolic demand, then you're actually not able to use as much sugar and it creates more of a demand on your, and you're eating the same amount of sugar, it creates a higher demand on your insulin. So, you know, the testosterone level going down can actually lead to estrogen dominance too, because it converts back to estrogen more fat produces more estrogen as well, and that can lead to insulin resistance too. So we have these kind of pathways that shift back and forth of testosterone, estrogen, progesterone that are really creating these insulin fluctuations. So, you know, women also, let's talk about testosterone is producing the ovaries and, and when it goes down, yes, it goes down late in your 30s most likely, but if you've had a hysterectomy within about two years, all of your sex hormones are going to go down, including testosterone. So, um, you know, with women that had hysterectomy, their biggest complaints are usually hormonal complaints within about two years, and testosterone is part of that, okay? And it it does help with insulin resistance, so you gain weight. Same thing with progesterone. You can gain weight when you take out the uterus and, and put the ovaries into a premature uh, menopause. The question I get a lot is, why did I go through menopause if I leave my ovaries in? And I get this question a lot. And I think, you know, 
maybe as doctors, we need to be a little bit better at looking at physiology and understanding what happens when you take out a uterus. And again, I'm not a surgeon, but when you clamp off the blood supply or you take out the portion of the blood supply to the ovaries in order to get the uterus out, the, the, the amount of circulation to the ovaries declines. And again, that's a natural phenomenon of taking out that uterus that these ovaries are going to get smaller. And when those ovaries get smaller, they're not able to produce as much hormone. So, you know, that to me is a big key to, you want to keep, if you can keep your hormones in your uterus as long as possible, obviously there's reasons to not because we can now replace them bioidentically, but you would, you would want to try to do so. So let's talk about blood sugars and being higher than normal. So you know, luteinizing hormone um, produces testosterone in the ovaries. And again, when you go through menopause, that luteinizing hormone goes down. Again, we can't produce testosterone. You can't produce testosterone. Your blood sugars become erratic because your insulin becomes resistant. You gain weight. It's kind of that same process that we were talking about a few minutes ago. So, you know, I think that we need to really critically think about what is going on in our body, how we can change it. Some people like what we would call um, intermittent fasting. Why? Because you're decrease, decreasing your sugar and calorie load for extended periods of time, which leads to helping your insulin. Okay. It actually makes your insulin work a lot more efficiently. It takes the whole load off your insulin. So for some people that works really, really well. So, you know, that's one way. Another way is to do a sugar detox or do a liver detox to clean out the liver so that the body can metabolize the sugar more efficiently. We have a really good one that I use um, that is a week long of detox and then a week of um, just clean eating, low residual. Why? Because our liver does all the metabolism of the sugars. So why not clear that out, give it a fair shot to be able to process your sugars and that way you don't necessarily have as much of a load on your insulin levels as well. And again, it, it should help with all processing of all toxins for that matter. So, you know, the less testosterone you produce, um, the less calories you're able to tolerate, the more fat you'll store as body fat, the less metabolism your muscles have, again, and your insulin resistance and blood sugars are just perpetuated. Um, so let's talk about a little bit of um, what you can do. We have about 20 minutes left. So I think really discussing where to go from here and how to fix what's going on in your body is important. And, you know, with one of your hormones becomes imbalanced, your whole body is affected. That's, and that's really the key to this, right? So I think the first thing to do is to literally go on what we would call a sugar detox or a sugar elimination diet. And, you know, that is key to depleting, again, those glycogen stores, those stores of sugar that are really going to be um, released in response to glucagon when you need it. And we don't want that to be there. So what I suggest is two weeks of getting off of carbohydrates, um, everything that's fruits, that's, that's breads, that's pastas, that's chickpeas, that's hummus um, for two weeks. So it's protein and veggies, but you do have to increase your fat intake for that two weeks. And you are going to need to add a little bit of salt into your diet for that two weeks so that you don't feel like you're dehydrating or you're getting lightheaded and that you're able to do things. It's all about balance and osmosis and water balance, okay? Sugar holds fluid as well as salt, all right? So that's step one. You do that for two weeks. And then after you go off of that two-week insulin or sugar detox, then you're going to put back in 
what I would say is one serving of carbohydrate or simple sugar a day. So that's zero to five grams of sugar per serving. And that's once a day. So that's berries. Um, that might be a little bit of um, honey and something, something very, very simple. Why? Because that is going to help you have a little bit of sugar without feeling like you're depriving yourself. Okay. But it's not enough to give you back your stores of a glycogen. Okay. And it will help to prevent some of the mood swings that your brain will have initially when you're off of carbohydrate loads. All right. So after you do that, then we're going to talk about, all right, what can we do next to optimize your body? Well, I think that's looking at your thyroid, looking at your cortisol levels, looking at your, um, obviously your insulin levels, which we hopefully would have already have checked and looking at your hormones, your testosterone, your estrogen, your progesterone. And to support the thyroid, again, we talked about maybe doing some methylated B12, uh, maybe doing some B12 shots once a week to help with and um, circulating B12 levels. The higher your B12 level is, the better you're going to produce thyroid hormone and the better you're going to have other met metabolic benefits. The other thing with B12 is you're going to pee out any excess. It is not a fat-soluble vitamin. So you'll urinate out anything that's not wanted. And obviously, it's a little bit of a waste, but we want you'll absorb what you can absorb. And we have a bunch of different mechanisms for getting that. Um, chromium and vanadium are two minerals that we use to help with um, blood sugars and thyroid, actually. And those two, we have um, something called glucokine, which is a nice uh, supplement that helps with um, bitter melon, chromium. It helps with insulin resistance. Those are great before meals. So if you are going to eat a sugary meal, you can take those and it will help it to work a little bit more efficiently so you don't put the strain on your insulin, which is great, right? They're wonderful supplements. The you know, obviously we want the thyroid to work really well with the insulin levels and vitamin D being optimized is another one. And, you know, in my, um, in the medical field, you know, there is so much controversy over the amount of vitamin D and a lot of primaries will put you on a thousand IUs of vitamin D. The problem is, is vitamin D is very tough to absorb and a thousand IUs is not going to get you very far in what I would say metabolism boosting osteoporosis help, um, and even um, helping with the thyroid. I start with 5,000 IUs of vitamin D3 with A and K2. Um, it's called D-bomb in my line. And to me, that is a great way to get your levels high enough to give you the benefit of metabolism help. You know, taking 1,000 is fine. It's just not going to get you, generally speaking, where you need to be. So that ADK is important. That B12 is important that bitter melon and chromium are important. And, you know, there's um, obviously for the thyroid, we can always put back a little bit of T3 or T4. So we talked about T4 being Synthroid, which is a commercially available on the market, or Levothyroxine. The other one is T3, and that's Cytomel. And Cytomel is the active thyroid hormone. So when we talk about, you know, whether or not um, to take one or the other, I think you have to look at your body and how much are you converting. You have to make T3 from T4. It's a very complicated process that involves everything I just talked about. B12, vitamin D, A, K2, um, methylation pathways, and chromium. So iodine, rather. So these things are crucial to having your th thyroid work normally. And remember, if your insulin isn't working really well, getting your thyroid where it needs to be, they're, they, they're both self-defeating. So they work against each other, essentially. So it's very tough to fix. 
if you're not um, fixing both, okay? And I like iodine as a, a I do a seaweed or kelp-based iodine. Um, it's called iThroid. Um, that is a great way to help your thyroid work more efficiently because guess what? Those threes and fours and that T3, T4, they're iodine molecules. So you need three and four of them to make it. And we don't have iodine in anything anymore. So, you know, us, and how many people are salting their foods and you don't get very much bioavailable iodine in there anyway. So for me, iodine is, is key to getting the thyroid to work a little bit better. The next thing is something that's kind of interesting. It's called LDN. And LDN is a little bit newer um, in, the, in the world of what I do. And LDN is low-dose naltrexone. And LDN is very interesting. It works in the brain to create, um, to stimulate what we would say the, the opiate receptors or the mu receptors, and actually to suppress appetite. And what we find in patients that do this low-dose naltrexone, which is Narcan essentially except very low-dose, which is an anti-opiate medicine, it actually will improve insulin resistance and help with weight loss. So um, our data on LDN is excellent. And I really like it for people that have kind of tried all these things and they have a lot of inflammation in their body. And this is a what we would call like almost like an autoimmune perpetuating problem. LDN is great. So LDN um, can be made from a compounding pharmacy as well. They can be taken as a little um, capsule. And it's, it's one of those things where I, f I find um, it's very successful for a lot of people. So that's one that maybe you want to tuck away in your, in your pearls for today because that's the one that probably you haven't heard of or maybe you have, you just didn't know what to do with it. And that's a great one. When we talk about the actual hormones, the sex hormones, there's a couple different ways to regulate them without giving back bioidentical progesterone, bioidentical testosterone, or um, even estrogen if we need it. And HCG is one of those. And that is what we, that's called the pregnancy hormone. And that pregnancy hormone is really interesting because it stimulates testosterone production. Right now, it's a little bit difficult to get, but um, it is coming back onto the market. And HCG stimulates testosterone and helps with metabolism and insulin resistance. And it is very, very interesting. We used to use it for a diet, which was called the HCG diet. Some people still do it. And it was a very calorie-restricted diet um, with HCG to try to, um, at the time, help with what they would say insulin levels. But really what, you know, what it was doing was stimulating testosterone. And, and by a byproduct of that, it was helping insulin levels and insulin resistance. So you would metabolize your, your food much more efficiently. And HCG can be taken as an injectable. Um, twice a week, or or even daily, actually, for some of the diets, depending on what you're doing. And it can also be done as a lozenger. And I find it to be really helpful um, to suppress appetite for certain people as well. So HCG, while it's it's a little bit difficult to get right now, is coming back on the market. And I do find that that's a really beneficial way to help with insulin resistance and help with hormone levels. Okay. So DHEA. So DHEA is probably one of my, I would say, least favorite ways, but it is very commonly used to help to stimulate testosterone. And DHEA is what we would call a precursor hormone. It is in early in the pathway and it shifts over into what we would call testosterone and, and other hormones. However, in women, DHEA is pretty tough to force it down a certain pathway. What that means is 
it has a tendency to go to estrogen or other places and create a little bit of a side effect profile. Um, it's very easy to get. It is over the counter. We um, we do sell it online. and But it does have, again, it has like a side effect profile that sometimes can be a little bit hard when you try to push the dose for women. For men, it's a little bit easier to use to stimulate some testosterone production and some DHT, but you have to worry a little bit about DHT and hair loss. So um, we want to, you just kind of have to be cautious about checking where that DHEA is headed. Um, a prescription product on the market um, that you can get is called Clomid. A lot of you have probably heard of Clomid from, um, from fertility treatments. And Clomid is great, again, for stimulating testosterone, especially in men. It will give them a pretty mild to moderate increase in their testosterone production. And as far as insulin resistance goes, it actually does a really nice job to help with early insulin resistance in men that have low T. So if we're not looking to go on testosterone yet, or your levels are what I would say like moderately low in the 600 range, then we can definitely try something like a Clomid and it works relatively quickly. So we should know within a couple of weeks if it's giving you some benefit or not. Not necessarily for the insulin resistance, but for the testosterone production. Um, so, you know, I think that Clomid is definitely an option and I, I think it's a little bit underutilized. It doesn't give you a huge increase in testosterone, but the, the little bit that it does do, I do find that with a lower sugar diet it, and the insulin resistance comes down pretty nicely. Okay. So let's talk about traditional metformin a little bit. I like metformin. I'm sure most people know about metformin. I'm going to do a whole talk on what I would say is the 10 most um, anti-aging supplements and medications of all time. Metformin is probably one of them. It does a really good job of directly working on insulin, right? Um, the only thing that I don't like about metformin is we're not addressing the core root of the problem. So if you're doing that with a really low sugar diet and we're getting your, your insulin levels to come down and, we're, and we get you off of metformin at some point, then I'm all for it. But metformin on its own, my only problem is we're not teaching you anything or we're not fixing anything around the insulin. We're just assuming that your problem is insulin and that's it. Um, so I don't, have a, I don't have a problem using it. I just don't like using it in isolation. So I kind of use it in combination with other things, whether we're going to use Clomid and metformin or we're going to use HCG and metformin. Are we going to work on your thyroid as well with the iodine and, and, L, and or are we going to use LDN? So these are ways that I like to combine them as opposed to using it by itself. Um, and I think, you know, one that probably none of you really know, unless you've listened to my podcast, is actually Vespa. And I can't wait for more data on Vespa specifically, but Vespa is a wasp extract that actually helps the wasp itself has the highest, um, it can run off its body fat for the longest period of time. So it has great sugar regulation, right? So it's all fat adapted and it's wonderful. So for if you're going to go on these low sugar diets, which I do highly encourage, um, and you're going to back off of the carbohydrates and you're going to get on some good healthy fats, Vespa helps you to tap into your natural fat stores for use while you're working out, while you're doing your day, so that you're not as hungry. And I think if we really look critically at what's going on there is you're going to find that insulin levels are dropping pretty exponentially with Vespa use. And why? Because we're not necessarily needing it to tap in to anything 
you know, on a, on a, what I would call a peak in a trough. We're not spiking anything. We're really just giving you this steady dose of sugar. Um, so if we actually checked it over time, I bet you it would be just super steady and stable. And Vespa is a liquid. It is, um, you kind of squeeze it, a pouch into your mouth before a workout or in the morning before you leave for work. And it, it will work for, it works for a while actually, um, depending on how extreme your workout is and stuff like that. There's all kinds of protocols online. You can find that on my website with a discount code as well. Just message me um, on info at mydrlaurie.com um, to get some more info if you can't find the discount code from my couple podcasts ago. And you know what you're going to find is that it really helps. I, I've gone back on Vespa over the last six months or so during COVID, and I find that I'm a lot less hungry. Um, I don't have to necessarily worry as much about getting the extra fat content and getting the extra sodium in. I just feel a lot more regulated. So, you know, when you were talking about things that that are maybe outside the box, Vespa is definitely one of them. So with the last four minutes or so, I want to talk a little bit about my products and what I have to offer you guys. So, you know, I don't know um, behind me, and I'm not sure how many of them you can actually read if you're watching my podcast, but we have a lot of products to help with this. And you don't necessarily have to be in one of my programs to go on these products. And I can do a, an analysis of what's going on with you, sometimes without even labs. So we can talk about symptomatology on my intake. Um, we can go through it and I can give some suggestions on hormone optimization. And what I would say is we can go on Fullscript, which is actually a supplement um, wholesale website or retail website that's all pharmaceutical grade and pick out some that aren't in my line. And of course, there's some that are in my line that I think are really wonderful for helping you with sugar regulation. If we're trying to get your sugar regulated, we have to treat your gut. That's one of the, you know, probably, I guess, global um, things that we talk about when we talk about regulating diet, inflammation, blood sugars, is that we have to have your gut healed up. So that gut shield or that gut calm powder, which is on my website, which is in this beautiful Grand Fondo mug, um, is wonderful for helping to calm the lining down and getting things to work a little bit more appropriately, especially if your antibodies, your inflammation are up. Because remember, you can fight your own insulin, you can fight your own thyroid. Again, when you start fighting those things, what happens? You start to become resistant and your thyroid becomes sluggish. So we want to calm down that gut lining. Um, the other one that um, I really like is, is something called um, Pro Motility or Motility Pro. And what that does is it helps move the food through the gut. Um, it is basically, it's an herbal supplement. So it helps so that it's not, your gut's not backing up with the food. If the food is sitting in there and not being absorbed appropriately, again, blood sugar regulation is going to be much more difficult. Okay. By the same token, a good probiotic um, will help as well. We have two, we have the, the, um, the gut biome, which is a more traditional probiotic which was, it's called Sarcomyces boulardii and Sarcomyces rhamnosus, but those two bugs are really good for helping to regulate what I would call like a normal inflammatory gut or a leaky gut. If you don't do well with probiotics, generally speaking, you're what we call probably SIBO or an inflammatory bowel. And in those patients, we have a new one called Sporify. And Sporify is a spore-based probiotic. It's really kind of cool. That probiotic actually is um, 
it's, it's, it's basically not alive. It's a spore, but when it hits the small intestine, it actually becomes activated and it helps to draw out the extra bacteria from the gut. If you listen to my SIBO um, uh, lecture or uh, podcast, you'll hear all about that. That is a wonderful probiotic for people that may feel that probiotics either worsen their symptoms or, or don't help at all. So, you know, those gut products are great. Then I use glucokine, iodine, like I said, we prescribe armor if we have to for thyroid regulation. Um, we also can do the DHEA, um, which is also on my um, on full script portal. If we have to do the prescriptions, we can go that route as well. VESPA is available as well, like I said, on my portal. So again, when we talk about these things, I just want you guys to understand that your traditional doctor, unfortunately, and I was one of them, so I can speak from experience. I'll be lecturing for the college, um, the ACOFP, the College of Osteopathic Family Physicians on integrative medicine and maybe what we can incorporate into your regular family practice visit um, coming up because we don't think about these things in traditional medicine. We're too busy being um, retroactive instead of proactive. And that's, and then things are not isolated. I put you on cholesterol medicine. What happens within two years? You don't have enough cortisol or you don't have enough sex hormones. You get ED. These are things we don't think about. So just to close, guys, if you want to do this, you can go on my website, mydrlori.com, and you can fill out a wellness intake, and we can talk about where to go next. We can get you lab script. Or if you just want information on supplement recommendations, put that in your message. And um, again, info at mydrlori.com if you want to email me directly. All right, guys, I hope that was informative. And until next Wednesday, I'll see you soon. Thank you for tuning in to Anti-Aging Unraveled. Be sure to join Dr. Lori Gerber again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week and keep you aging gracefully.